Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show... A story of truth, invention and murder, with Mark O'Connell and his new book, A Thread of Violence. Mark O'Connell is the author of Notes from an Apocalypse and To Be a Machine, which was awarded the 2019 Rooney Prize for Irish Literature and the 2018 Welcome Book Prize and shortlisted for the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction. Is a contributor to The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, Slate and The Guardian. And today we're going to be talking about Mark's latest book, which is A Thread of Violence, A Story of Truth, Invention and Murder. Mark, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, Neil. Uh, good to be back for the third time we've just established. So this book is about, in the main, a notorious Irish man called Malcolm MacArthur. Tell us something, I guess, first of all, about Malcolm's background. Yeah, MacArthur is, I would say, probably the most widely recognized, most notorious murderer in certainly contemporary sort of living Irish history. He was in the 1970s and early 80s, a sort of well-known figure around Dublin. He was kind of a a bit of a socialite, really. He came from a, a fairly well-off background in, in County Me, the kind of landed gentry background. And uh, for all of his uh, youth, his 20s and, and most of his 30s, he lived off a, a fairly substantial inheritance. Um, so he never worked. And he kind of lived uh, not a particularly hedonistic lifestyle, but he uh, he lived, I suppose, what you would call a life of the mind. He uh, spent most of his time in libraries, pursuing his, his various kind of uh, intellectual and, and scientific interests never worked never never did any kind of academic career never uh was particularly interested in writing or any other kind of job and spent a lot of his time just in restaurants enjoying the company of of other people and so on um so he lived in a way quite an ideal sort of quasi aristocratic lifestyle until as inevitably happens with people who don't have infinite money uh he ran out of money and he was in his late 30s at this point. This was the early 1980s, uh, 1982, thereabouts. And he was living at the time in, in Tenerife with his his partner and his his young son, Colin, who was about seven years old. And he decided instead of, you know, finding work, uh, getting some kind of job, he decided that he was going to come back to Ireland. He told his partner that he was uh, sorting out his, his finances in Belgium. Um, he came back here, didn't tell anyone he was, he was coming back and started to plan an armed robbery, a bank robbery. 
at this time in Ireland, there would have been fairly frequent kind of uh, armed robberies and, and, you know, post office robberies, tiger kidnappings, that kind of thing by mostly IRA, people funding Republican paramilitary violence and so on. And MacArthur kind of thought, well, I'm a smart guy. I can probably pull this off. So in the course of planning and attempting to pull off this bank heist, um, which never actually happened, he brutally murdered two young people, two perfect strangers, a young nurse, 27 years old, named Bridie Gargan, who was sunbathing in the Phoenix Park in Dublin um, he, in attempting to steal her car, battered her to death really brutally and senselessly with a hammer. And two days later, he arranged to meet a young farmer, also 27 year, years old, a man named Donald Dunn in Edenderry in County Offaly. And in the course of attempting to buy a shotgun from this guy, this farmer, he shot Donald Dunn uh, point blank in the face and hid his body in some bushes, stole his car, drove back to Dublin and went to stay with a friend of his in a suburb of Dublin called Dorky. Um, and this is really why the case is still kind of remembered to this day. And it's it's still such an infamous story. The, the friend he stayed with um, was a guy named Patrick Connolly. And Connolly was at the time, the Attorney General, Ireland's Attorney General. So the, when he was when MacArthur was arrested after a very public, very kind of dramatic two-week or thereabouts long uh, manhunt, he was arrested in Connolly's apartment. It was a huge, obviously a huge uh, political scandal. It almost brought down the government. It contributed to the weakening of the government that fell later that year. And then MacArthur went to prison for 30 years. Uh, by the time he got out in 2012, he was the longest serving prisoner in the country at that time. And yes, we got out in 2012. And that's kind of where my story intersected with his and where the book sort of uh, begins. And so what's your connection to this? Because there is uh, a couple of sort of personal connections to this story. Yeah, I mean, they're quite tangential connections and certainly quite idiosyncratic. But my grandparents, I mean, I was very young when this happened. I was only a you know, two-year-old. But my grandparents lived in the same apartment building as Patrick Connolly as the Attorney General. So although I don't remember the events themselves, I do remember as a child, you know, I spent a lot of time in that place. And I do remember knowing that this bizarre thing had happened where they lived and that, you know, they they knew Connolly. Um, they were questioned, in fact, by the detectives that questioned everyone who lived in the building. Um, so I knew about this growing up and was kind of fascinated that this, you know, bizarre, dramatic thing had happened uh, in this place that I knew so well. So it kind of, I wouldn't go so far as to say it through a shadow over my childhood. It was nothing that dramatic or dark from my point of view, but it was certainly a, a sort of a, an interesting niggling thing that I knew about and thought about in my own childish way for a long time. And then when I was in my 20s, I did a PhD uh, in Trinity College in Dublin on the work of the Irish novelist John Banville. And Banville, uh, one of his most famous and I think probably his, to me, his, his most interesting book and maybe his best book is a book called The Book of Evidence, which is sort of loosely but very recognisably based on the story of MacArthur and, and those murders. Um, his character, Freddie Montgomery, is uh, you know very clearly based on, on MacArthur's life. And so when I was doing my PhD on Banville's work, I was doing, in fact, a postdoc at the time in 2012. You know, I would be in the library in Trinity thinking about this character, Montgomery, writing about him, reading scholarship on Banville and about these books. And I would leave the library, and this was around the time MacArthur had just been released from prison, and I would see this man in Trinity. You know, he would be walking around the city centre uh, and often at that time spent quite a bit of time on the Trinity campus. And there was just this extraordinary kind of sense of uh, fiction and, and reality being kind of uh, in a very close and sort of complicated relationship. And, and that really was the spark that 
that drew me in that sort of started this this book as a as a kind of a an obsession was seeing this person out about in the streets wondering what his life was like but also in this strange sort of way confusing him with uh, a fictional character who was also very vivid to me this seems incredibly trivial now have having you relay the um you know the actual the reality of the absolutely shockingly horrific double murder um, but i just wanted to go back to the um before the murders and the the dublin demimond that um, macarthur inhabited um there's a particular bar which sounds really great yeah this is partly duns right yeah exactly yeah yeah so that's quite a significant i suppose setting for the book this was where macarthur met his partner brenda little and where he met connolly and where his kind of much of his kind of social life was kind of uh, conducted and it was you know dublin in 1982 it's a very different place to what it's like now it wasn't a very cosmopolitan place you know there were of course gay people but there were very few gay bars for the i suppose quite simple reason that homosexuality was uh, strictly illegal in ireland at the time you know uh, it was punishable by imprisonment but bartley duns was um kind of a very open-minded bohemian place that had a, quite a large gay clientele and it was yeah it had sort of pretensions to um a sort of continental kind of sophistication and, and it was a place that macarthur was well known in um he was uh, kind of a regular there and uh yeah it's it's a significant kind of place for the book and i think it's still the idea of the place still captures people's imaginations particularly in dublin where the kind of the context the reality of the city was was so different and in in some ways um so bleak when do you first think about because you mentioned in the, the end of the book that you know this idea has been percolating with you for a number of years so when do you first think about writing about macarthur yeah this seems to be something that sort of happens to me with certainly with all of my books is that i kind of rack my brains to try and think of what the next book could be. Is there even a, an idea for a book there? And it, it always winds up being something that's that's actually been there for years. And, and in, in a lot of cases, something I've written about already. And I, and I go back to it and realize there's actually a book kind of nestled inside this smaller thing, this smaller piece. And that was that was the case with, with MacArthur. I guess I knew in the back of my mind that there was something really rich there, that there was something really interesting and dark and, and strange. But I wrote a piece for an American website called The Millions, uh, years ago in fact in 2012 just after macarthur got out and it was just a you know it was a short and quite sort of um in a way quite frivolous in a literary sort of way reflection on seeing this guy out and about and while also writing my kind of scholarly work on this fictionalized version of this real person and the kind of uh the tension of seeing <clears throat> reality overlaid over over fiction um and it was kind of a a sort of a meta rumination on the relationship between fiction and reality through that kind of fleeting experience of meeting this murderer on the streets or on the in the campus in in Trinity, and I kind of left that and forgot about it for a long time. But um, I would keep seeing MacArthur out on the streets. You know, I would keep seeing him around, and I would always kind of wonder, first of all, what was his life like? You know, because I would never speak to him, but I would recognize him, and I would know that he he would see me recognizing him. He was quite aware of his the effect that he has on people. And I was quite struck by, you know, he's he's out there, he's walking around, strolling the streets of Dublin. Dublin is a small city, and it's a city with a long memory. And people remember this man. And he's often in, you know, he's often photographed walking around, his face will be in the tabloids. So people know who he is. And that was really fascinating to me, this question of having done something so horrific, and to be so famous for having done something so horrific, what must life be like for someone like that how would you live with the weight of it how would you live with the notoriety 
what, if any, kind of accommodation has he come to with these events? And I kind of thought, there's something there. I'm going to try and talk to this guy. And in a way, I was very naive. I didn't know at the time when I decided that I was going to write this book, I didn't know how steep the odds were against me getting him to talk. I had no idea because I'm not <clears throat> I'm not a journalist as such. I don't really exist within, certainly in Dublin, within any kind of media ecosystem. So I wasn't aware that, you know, he was a kind of a white whale figure. I mean, I suppose I should have, I, I should have imputed as much, but I wasn't aware that he was this sort of, yeah, kind of white whale figure for Irish filmmakers and, and journalists and documentary makers and, and, uh, and so on. And that there was a good reason why he'd never spoken publicly before, which was that he was under fairly strict license conditions, you know, as a condition of his being released because he got life when he was convicted as a condition of his being released in 2012. There's any number of, of stipulations to do with behavior and so on, one of which was that he should not approach members of the media and speak to or court publicity in any way. So I, I didn't realize at the time that that was why he was, he'd never spoken before. So I didn't realize how unlikely it was that I would get him to speak. In, in a way, that's a good thing. My naivety was kind of, uh, was helpful in a way, because I never would have began the project. I never would have convinced my publisher to, you know, pay me to write a book on this if I'd known how kind of steep the odds were against it. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Mark O'Connell. We're talking about his book, A Thread of Violence, A Story of Truth, Invention and Murder. And so, Mark, when you finally approach MacArthur to talk about writing this book, how do you go about it? 
I did it in a in a quite unprofessional way, I suppose. You know, this was during the lockdown. This was like sort of early days of of the pandemic, and you know, around the time I decided I was going to write a book about him and I was going to get him to talk, he disappeared. I was quite sort of complacent that I would just see him around in the streets, but everyone stopped leaving their houses at this point, and and so I spent a really long period of time just walking around Dublin, hoping to bump into this guy. I figured, you know, he's got to leave his apartment at some point. He'll probably. Uh, I had a fair idea that he lived in the city centre. And, you know, Dublin, as as you probably know, is a quite small city. And it's a city where, you know, at the best of times, it's difficult to avoid bumping into people. When you don't want to bump into people, you will bump into them. Um, and it's a city, you know, there's, uh, Ulysses is is the book of Dublin with good reason, because in, in no other city, I think, would such a kind of uh, a social situation arise where people are constantly bumping into people they know and stopping and chatting. But the pandemic was a very different time. Um, so, I was in this really bizarre situation of trying to engineer an accidental bump in with someone, you know, and being kind of continually thwarted and and frustrated. I did eventually. So there was a, a newspaper article around the spring of twenty twenty one that was just like as so many articles about MacArthur were at the time. It was just uh, you know he was photographed on the streets. Um, there was a kind of a a slightly sort of frivolous conversation i wouldn't even call it an interview i don't think he was aware that he was being interviewed but a conversation about the lockdown and the headline was uh, macarthur supports lockdown regulations and it was a photograph of him wearing his his um his mask uh, and i called the photographer who was credited in the piece and you know asked him how likely i would be to bump into him if i hung out in this particular area um and he said you know you'll find him eventually if you're in this kind of in this particular area of the city so i did and i effectively stalked him for you know, about a week. And I did eventually find him. And and when I uh, saw him on the street, I just approached him and I said, you know, I kind of, I had been sort of prepared. I, I, I had a letter written um, and I write about this in the book, of course, but I had a, a letter that I was keeping on me all the time in case I, I came across him briefly kind of laying out the idea for the book that I wanted to write, saying that I was interested in talking to him about his childhood, about his past and describing myself as not a journalist or a reporter or a crime writer so much as an essayist. And that's how I introduced myself to him. I, you know, I said, my interest in you kind of arises out of my, my kind of academic work on Banville. So I kind of presented myself as something other than the tabloid journalists and, and crime writers who would, have, who would have approached him in the past. In a way that, you know, I kind of self, and I, again, I say this in the book, I was fairly sort of aware that I was you know, flattering his intellectual vanity. And that might be the way to to kind of draw him in. And also, I think there was enough wiggle room in presenting myself as as not a journalist, but an essayist that he was able to say, yeah, you know, maybe I'm not strictly in breach of my of my license um, regulations here. So so I can talk to this guy. But it was always kind of an ongoing negotiation an ongoing kind of exchange about how much he would tell me, what he would tell me about, and so on. But that was kind of the initial, the initial contact and how it came about. So the way you describe yourself to him, nonetheless, this book will, you know, fit quite nicely into the uh, the true crime section of a bookshop. And I wonder what your what your feelings were about, I guess, the whole sort of like morality around that genre before you set out on this project. Yeah, I mean, I knew that this would be seen as a true crime book just by by the nature of of the story I was trying to tell. And I've got nothing against true crime. I quite enjoy the genre. And, you know, it has to be said that some of the best literary nonfiction books have been in that can quite comfortably be categorized as, as true crime. 
um, you know, in Cold Blood, The Adversary by Manuel Carrera is a big model for this book. Um, Janet Malcolm's The Journalist and the Murderer. These are all, at least in some way, true crime books. Certainly In Cold Blood is, is a true crime book. So, yeah, I think I was aware that it would be categorized in this way. But at the same time, most true crime, I suppose, is predicated on sort of making uh, neat and compelling narratives out of uh, violence. And I was aware, I suppose, of the tension in the book of doing that and wanting to do that, but also at every step of the way, kind of questioning the morality of that. What does it mean to turn these chaotic, meaninglessly brutal acts into fodder for, you know, a great story? Because there's always this kind of conflict at the center of the book, my awareness that this is actually a great story. And when I'm telling it to people, I'm aware that people are, I'm aware of people's reactions, you know, God, this is crazy. How could this have happened at the attorney general's apartment, et cetera? So that is definitely a dimension of the book. And in some ways, what makes it as compelling as I think people seem to find it is that it is an extraordinary story, but there's a moral dimension to that. What does it mean to turn something like this into a story and to turn someone like MacArthur into a character? So I suppose it's like a second layer to the book of examining these questions sort of morally and ethically and epistemologically. What does it mean to turn something like this into a story? And when you started the project, I mean, regardless of what the book actually ends up as, what did you think? What was your sort of aim? What were you trying to find out about him, I guess, to get to the bottom of him? Yeah, you know, in a way, I suppose, again, there's a certain kind of naivety. I thought that I could get the truth of why he did what he did. Details that hadn't come out in the reporting or in his, you know, fairly extensive confession. I thought that I could get some clarity on why he did what he did. And what his life was like and, how, you know, why someone like him with as much privilege and with as kind of a, apparently ideal a life as he had, why he would resort to such extraordinary brutality. And maybe there was some way of explaining that through his childhood, through psychology and things like that. And I think, you know, as soon as I began to talk to him, you know, it's not to say that there weren't moments of, of real illumination uh, and moments where he was able to account for himself in ways that he previously hadn't before. But the experience of talking to this man over the course of, you know, a year and a half or thereabouts, having these long conversations, trying to make him make sense was one of kind of repeatedly attempting to fit him into these kind of narrative frames or or conceptual frames and, and always being kind of frustrating. There's always something, there's always something missing. There's always something that doesn't add up. And so in a way, the book is, as much as anything else, a kind of an attempt to to reckon with that ambiguity, with that kind of endless frustration and an attempt to find the truth to, as I say, get to the bottom of a person. And how does your relationship with him develop over the months? On a, I mean, setting aside the idea that, we, you know, we're trying to do some sort of intellectual project to get to the bottom mm-hmm. of the man personally, how does your relationship develop? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's that's a big dimension of the book. And it's it was one of the most um, tricky and kind of interesting aspects of talking to him for so long was that, you know, again, to go back to the time in which I started to write this book, the man is quite lonely. He's particularly lonely. You know, he's a he's an ex-con. He's very notorious. People know who he is. He lives on his own. But also it's the pandemic and he's an older man. He's in his now he's in his late 70s. He didn't have many people in his life. He didn't have really anyone in his life at this time. And so here I was, someone who was interested in hearing his story and would speak to him for hours on end. You know, he saw me as 
someone who was an intellectual equal, someone who was a kind of a worthy interlocutor, a worthy listener, someone who could listen to his, you know, we didn't spend all the time by any means talking about the crimes. Um, a lot of it was him, you know, dilating on his ideas about science and, you know, history and so on. Uh, and I think in some ways he was flattered by, it, but also it was, it was an outlet for his loneliness. So I was aware that, you know, a certain complexity could, could creep into the relationship. And I always tried in a way that it is not always my, my practice when I, when I write about people, I kind of maintain this quite sort of stiff, uh, almost formal air of, of professionalism in order, I think, to kind of, to put a sort of a barrier of professionalism between us, because I was aware, I think that um, something like a friendship could come about or that he might want something like that to come about. Um, so that was that was difficult. And, you know, we did get to know each other quite well over the time of, of writing this book. And I came to feel, you know, a very real responsibility for him. You know, it put him in a very difficult position, giving me his story, talking to me, um, providing me with material for this book. And in some ways, his, you know, the relationship is very kind of defined by shifting power dynamics in the sense that when I started to write the book, when we started to talk, all the power was was really his because he was able to kind of modulate how much of his story he was telling me. He had a lot of control, uh, or at least in theory, he had a lot of control over over how much he would give me. But of course, the more we talked, the more he did give me, and the more of his story that I had, the more the power kind of shifted towards me. And you know, what would I put in my book? The publication of the book became a kind of very real thing after a while. Um, you know, publication dates were set. Uh, the book was announced and this all created like a lot of tension, a lot of shifting kind of power dynamics in the relationship. So it was a very, uh, quite fraught relationship. And yeah, it's a complicated one. And it's still one that I'm in some ways still getting to grips with. And just as a, you know, just a, a quick reminder, as we haven't mentioned it for a bit, that, you know, Malcolm beat somebody to death with a hammer and uh, shot somebody in the face at close range with a shotgun. You talk in the book about how this relationship with him starts to sort of creep in and sort of poison in some ways your life when you're not with him as well and i mean i must admit i have it has occurred to me that he might listen to this interview hi malcolm if you are so tell us something about the way in which that relationship starts to sort of affect you outside of the 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 allotted times when you're actually doing the interviews yeah i mean as much time as i spent talking to him and you know, I would never say I got comfortable in his presence. It was it was never anything approaching comfortable, really. But I did get used to him in a certain way. And he would call a lot on the phone. And a lot of our conversations happened over the phone. And there were often moments where I would be just, you know, hanging out with my family or, or with my kids or whatever. And he would call and there would be this like sudden rupture of, of one world into another. Because when I was in his apartment, you know, recording conversations, taking notes, as I said, that kind of, you know, aura of professionalism allowed me to kind of keep it separate in a way, I suppose. But at the same time, there were, you know, it's it always there were these moments where it would suddenly just become very uh, vivid to me that he did these things, that he murdered these people in, in the most, you know, brutal and, and senseless imaginable way. And, you know, that was a dark thing, I suppose, you know, and, and some of the most difficult moments were in trying to get him to talk about it in a real way to kind of 
you know, because I wanted him in a way, one of the things, you know, when you asked me earlier, what, what did I want at the beginning? Certainly what I wanted was truth. But I think more than that, or at a deeper level of that was I wanted to see, I wanted him to talk about these things in what I can only describe as a real way. I wanted to see him feel the weight of what he did. And, you know, I question my own desire for that in the book. That's a kind of a major dimension of of the book in a way, my own like turning back, turning back on myself, that kind of that kind of moral questioning. But yeah, it was a complicated relationship, a complicated process, spending this time talking with him. And yeah, I mean, did I get to the truth of him? I'm not sure I did, really. But I think the kind of openness about that and the um, the openness about the frustration of never quite getting a a clear read on this man's motivations, why he did what he did. It certainly, it was in a way a more interesting experience for me to reckon with that ambiguity. And it's in a way, and this isn't true of my other books, there's something strange about this project, this story, this book, in that even when I'm talking about it now, and it's been published, it's out there, it's sort of conversations are happening about it, it still feels in this strange way unfinished. It still feels as though it's it's still unresolved for me. And, you know, when I got the book, you know, you get sent copies of your book by your publisher. And in this case, it was quite soon before publication. Um, it came out in Ireland quite a few weeks ago. So it was it was quite sort of close to the actual publication date. And when I opened the books and when I opened the box and, and held the book in my hand, the hardback, there was just this strange thing of like, oh, it's actually a book, you know, it's not this ongoing moral problem or this kind of vexing relationship, or an ongoing kind of, uh, you know, near mental breakdown, it's actually, it's actually just a book. And, you know, it's finished. And it feels, it feels not like that in reality. It feels, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, you can probably tell listening to me, there's still something kind of unresolved and, and haunting about this to me. So I've been talking to Mark O'Connell, we've been talking about his new book, A Thread of Violence, a story of truth, invention, and murder which is out now in the UK from Granta. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thank you, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.